Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. It is uh, no secret, I'm not shocking anyone, when I point out that we as a country, and really countries all around the world, we make a much, much bigger deal out of Christmas than we do Easter. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but I mean, just think about it. Think about it. Christmas is an entire season. I think, I would say officially it begins before Thanksgiving dinner is completely cleaned up. And for one-twelfth of our calendar year, we string lights all over our houses and in our communities, and we put reindeer in the yards, in our yards. We have traditions through the whole month. I mean, we go to shows, and we have ugly sweaters, and we have tree lightings. We have Christmas movies. My family has a solid eight or nine Christmas movies is our tradition that we try to watch every year. Can you imagine your kid, like, running up to you, like, a week before Easter, like, Mom, Mom, can we please watch The Passion of the Christ again? And you're like, sweetheart, we've watched that eight years in a row. I mean, it's amazing what we do. Our work, we have work parties for Christmas. Corporations budget Christmas parties. Imagine coming to work one day and one of your buddies says, hey, the boss is taking us all out. We're, we're closing Tuesday early and going out for Easter drinks. Or uh, imagine the, the, the shopping that we do all month long and we... We give presents to every family member, and we often give presents to people in our lives, like school teachers, or even sometimes even neighbors or coworkers. Imagine going to work on a Tuesday with a beautifully wrapped box, and you give it to your friend, your coworker, and they're like, "What's this?" And you're like, "Happy Easter." I mean, that would be super weird. I would think you're weird. It's amazing. How long, how extended the focus of Christmas is. And uh, dare I not forget the Hallmark Channel. The Hallmark Channel screens two Christmas movies simultaneously on two different channels 24-7 starting in October. Now let's compare that to Easter. And this is super sad to say. But more and more each year, more and more Americans don't even realize it's Easter weekend until Friday, until Good Friday, or until until Saturday. And is it possible? I mean, we know it is that there are Americans, there are people, many people, probably waking up this morning not realizing it's Easter. They may not know it's Easter until tomorrow. And for those of us who take Easter seriously... Taking it seriously for for many people, many homes, looks something like, hey, we're going to church on Sunday, it's Easter, and then we're going to have Easter lunch. And Easter lunch usually includes just the people of the house, or maybe sometimes family or friends, certainly that live close. No one travels for Easter. At Christmas, we go on airplanes and plan big vacations. Yeah, we travel for spring break. We don't travel for Easter. And for the real crazies, the real Easter crazies, lunch 
is followed by like a 20-minute egg hunt in the yard that ends around 1.30 or 2, so golf fans like me can watch the final round, the dramatic final round of the Masters, right? And before you know it, by mid-afternoon, Easter turns back into a normal Sunday. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons for this. We could study this from a kind of a social sociology kind of view. We could look at this from a marketing, commercialization idea. Obviously, it's easy to generate energy and maybe even as retailers focus, you know, like, wow, it's, 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 I think it's easy to get motivated around the idea of a sweet little baby being born than maybe a bloodied man hanging on a cross. I get it. There's, there's a lot of reasons we could focus on. There are two challenges I had with Easter early in my faith that I think might speak to part of the, the spiritual reason why many believers, many follow, believers in the Easter story, followers of Jesus, minimize Easter as compared to Christmas. And so I want to spend these two Sundays, ending next week, next week's message will end with communion, I want to, I want to focus on two challenges that I had early in my faith now, I had more questions than just two, many questions about why the blood, why so gruesome, and many, many things I was needing to work out when I was young in my faith. But there were two primary questions that really haunted me, and they both come from Matthew 27. I'm going to read this portion of the story of Good Friday, Jesus on the cross, and I want to today just kind of unpack one of the thoughts, one of the struggles that I had that I think lead us to, we, we, we revere Easter, we celebrate it, but we minimize it when you think of what it actually represents. So here we go in Matthew 27. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by, and we know from the gospel writers, we know from Matthew, Mark, particularly in Luke's account, that a, a large crowd, a multitude, watched the crucifixion, watched Jesus' execution, and then followed him and the executioners outside the city walls to Golgotha and were there during the hours of Jesus hanging on the cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Jesus, without them understanding yet what he meant, referred to himself as the temple. He's the actual temple, the, the presence of God. The presence of God dwells in him. He would tear down the temple, and three days later it would be rebuilt. If your God's son come down from the cross, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. These are the religious leaders who had him crucified. These are the, the leaders who teach and supposedly model the Old Testament scriptures, they become so insecure at the success of Jesus and the power they've actually witnessed time and time again, his miraculous power. Instead of being in awe of that, isn't it amazing what the human heart can do? These leaders saw themselves losing control, and so they conspired to kill him. These Teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. That's a statement. 
we'll come back to in just a moment. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. If it's not bad enough that the crowd, some of whom we know witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus a week earlier, praises him on Palm Sunday, they've turned against him because he's not turning out to be the king they thought. They thought he would overthrow the Jewish leaders, the corrupt Jewish leaders, take over essentially Judea, and then make his move toward Rome. It would actually conquer Rome. That's what the people here impoverished by the Roman Empire are hoping for. That's what the Messiah will do. And somewhere between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, the crowd, the sentiment changes. He's not who we thought he was. He's not a conquering king. So not only does this crowd turn on him and they're mocking him, so are his crucifiers. To make matters worse, the criminals hanging on either side of him are mocking him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which was in his original Aramaic language, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling the prophet Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. After the torturous crucifixion that began late at night, late Friday night, we would say late Friday night, early Saturday morning, in the Jewish day after sunset, all through the night, now hanging on the cross for hours, Jesus finally, finally dies. At that moment, the curtain of the temple that had for hundreds of years separated the people from the presence of God, it was torn immediately when Jesus died, representing full access to God has been made. The earth shook, the rocks split, and tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. I mean, that's the remarkable, that ending, these last couple verses, are what we celebrate today. It's just nothing, nothing in the history of earth compares to Jesus walking out of the tomb. And so did so many other people. There's life now where we never, ever thought there could be. I want to spend this first focus on Easter going back a little bit to Jesus hanging on the cross. Something that, that bothered me when I, would hear, hear my, when I would hear my pastor read this or every Easter season, when it was just talked about in the church or I would read it on my own, Matthew 27, 40. If you're God's son, come down from the cross. It bothered me every time. I just remember, and I still to this day, I know how the story ends. I understand. I'm fully aware of this whole story. I've studied it. I went to graduate school to study this. I still have this default back to my teenage years in, in my 20s when I would be bothered by the mockers challenging Jesus to come down off the cross. And I've wondered 
as a teen and in my 20s, and I still kind of find myself wanting this today. I want him to do it. Why doesn't Jesus come down off the cross? The men who put him on the cross, they're mocking. They don't believe there's a chance that he's going to come down off the cross. But they even say, if you do it, if you come down from the cross, we'll believe in you. You know what's ironic about that? These are the men who have seen blind men have their eyes restored, their sight restored. They've, they've seen and witnessed Lazarus come out of the tomb. They've seen miracle after miracle. And as the hundreds of followers turn into thousands... Everywhere Jesus goes, he has crowds waiting for him because of his notoriety and the authority. No one's ever seen anything like this. The Pharisees and religious leaders have been witnessing the same events, but their eyes, we're, we're, we're told that their eyes, their spiritual eyes are blinded and their hearts are so hard that instead of falling to their knees like, how did you do that? You must truly be from God. You must be the Messiah. Instead, they are scripting a plan to end his life. And so these people, we already know, we have one account where Jesus says, I could perform another miracle right in front of your eyes and you wouldn't believe. He says that to their face. Even if Jesus comes down off the cross, their fear of losing power and the control of the people would overwhelm them. To blind them from this. And yet I so want him to do it. You ever see that just in our own internal justice? We want justice. We want to see something that's been so wrong or so ugly or people believe something. You want to see it made right. We've all experienced this. We all have examples of this. You ever known something to be true? And there's someone or there, there's a group of people who've witnessed it, or they were part of the story, and they could just verify it. They could just speak up and verify, no, 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 we were there. Or, or, and and maybe, maybe, they, maybe they're like on vacation, or they're out of town, or, or maybe they don't speak up because they're just humble for some reason. Like they just, and you so want them to say, I was at that Super Bowl. Tell them, or I... I had this experience in 2003. I was a young pastor here in the Dulles area. I hadn't been leading a church very long. And for those of us natives here to the area, we got to watch for several years the Smithsonian build the new Air and Space Museum here off of 28. It's just fascinating when the big observation tower finally went up and it was just, you know, I, I, I'm a space geek and just was totally into it. And so what does a space geek do who's a young pastor he invites the Apollo astronaut who walked on the moon, who has a very compelling faith story, to come speak at our church that Sunday morning and then go to the Air and Space Museum the next day. And I, had, I couldn't remember his name and just researched it quickly, and it was Charlie Duke. Charlie Duke was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 16. He was one of the 12 people, one of the 12 humans to walk on the moon he replied and said, oh my gosh, I'd be so honored. Now, no joke, I was like, do you have a, speaker, speaker, a speaker's fee, a speaking appearance fee, you know? And he said, well, I do, and I don't want to tell you what it is, but I don't, I don't charge churches. 
if you want to give me something, that's great, but I just, I love to come and encourage churches. Found out his speaker's fee was $20,000. So he came, his wife Dottie, Amy and I picked them up at Dulles, went to dinner. It was just one of the most surreal experiences really of my life. I don't want to be too dramatic, but it really was. And so he speaks at church on Sunday morning. And then we get to take him. So the Air and Space Museum opened on a Monday morning, the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers flight, which I just thought was super cool, the Smithsonian, to do that. So that, that's, you know, we'll take you guys to the, they were like, yeah, we'd love to go with you. So we got to go on opening morning to the new Udvar Hadzi with Charlie and Dottie Duke. And pulling into the parking lot, I couldn't believe he said this. He said, now listen, when we get inside here, I don't want anybody to know I'm an Apollo astronaut. And I was like, what? And he said, no, no, no. I just want to experience it like a regular person. I just don't want any. And I was like, no. And so we, we, we go through, and it was just a fascinating. He's telling us about, you know, different air. I flew in that airplane, and, you know, I tested it. And then, no joke, we get to this, going back to where the space shuttle is, back to the space, uh, what is that room? The space room. Uh, to the left, there was this display, an exhibit, and this, I was going to say this girl, this young lady, 20, 21, 22 years old, works for the Smithsonian, is talking about what it felt like to be an Apollo astronaut and to walk on the moon. And she has a glove, one of the Apollo astronaut space gloves, and she's passing it around and letting people try it. And she's explaining, this 21-year-old, what it was like. And I'm looking at Charlie Duke standing three feet from me, smiling like, this is the moment. And he just looks at me, I'll never forget, he looks at me like this. And he's like, don't, the look said to me, don't do it, Brad. Don't tell these people I walked on the moon. <laughs> don't tell her, don't tell this young lady she has no idea what she's talking about. And the humility, just super humble. And I just wanted to see the, the looks on the faces of the people there, right? I mean, wouldn't that be super cool? You know what I would really like? I would love it if the gospel writers, the eyewitness account, record keepers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I would love it. Can you imagine if writing their story, they're telling us about the looks on the faces of the people who crucified Jesus when Jesus does it. He levitates himself off the cross and comes and stands right in front of them. Yeah, I'm the son of God. Man, as a 19, 20-year-old, I just so wanted that. And still to this day, you know, I've been prep and preparing for, for this in the last month. I just found myself again, like, my heart racing just a little bit. Like, man, you could have turned the world upside down in that moment. That was my thought, like, three weeks ago. Like, yikes. Pastor Brad, what are you saying all right, so let's dive into this a little bit more. If you're the son of God, if you're God, and there's something about that statement, I've never made this link, like that sounds familiar. If you're the son of God, if you're God's son, if you're God in the flesh, and this is the first year, it maybe takes me, maybe my next great revelation about Easter will be another 30 years from now, but it just clicked with me this year, Matthew 4, earlier in Matthew's account. At the start, Jesus is getting ready to go public. He's about to declare and demonstrate 
that the power of God's time and space and his presence has arrived with him, his kingdom. And to prepare, he goes out in the wilderness to pray and fast and be in total alignment with the Father's heart. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted. The evil tempter approaches Jesus. And it's, it's easy for you and I to just think, well, these are just kind of three random temptations. Satan, the proper way to actually translate Satan is the Satan. This evil entity that conspires every day of our lives to pull us off of center, to make us unwhole, not the beautiful display of God's character, the image bearers of God that he designed you and me to be. So creative and life-giving. In the garden, we were designed, we were told it was the blessing of God that we go and multiply. That, that is a creative statement that we would go and re, repurpose life. We would perpetuate life in the image of the creator. We would, as his image bearers, do the same. And there is this tempter that tries to pull us so far away from what we were designed to be. And Jesus, he's not experiencing just three random temptations. He's experiencing the three, the big three, that damage us, that so fatally flaw us as humans. And the temptation begins with, if you're God, if you're God's son. And what are the three? Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting. Turn these stones into bread, Jesus. You know you want to. You're so hungry. The first temptation is to satisfy our craving. To satisfy your craving. This is what we all face. We're tempted with this all the time. If you're God, if you're God and you should be, and to you and me, it sounds like you should be God of your life. This began in the garden. I want to be God. This is what broke the universe. This is what broke planet Earth. When humans decided, no, life doesn't work best when we center ourselves around the creator. Life works best when I am the decision maker. And in particular here, this is the temptation to do what feels right. If you're God, you can do what feels right. And Jesus, of course, resists this wasn't necessarily easy for We just think Jesus is like, shoo, get away. I'm God. No, he's incredibly hungry. And it was an actual temptation. It wasn't just a suggestion. He was tempted. And then out of his mouth come, no, humans can't just live on bread. What we actually live and thrive on are the words of God. This is what Jesus replies back to Satan. And then the second temptation just quickly follows. He's, Jesus is taken to the highest point of the temple. Throw yourself down, Jesus. And this seems like a strange temptation. Like, who's going to do that? It's a temptation to see verification of who you are. This is the temptation to prove yourself. This is the temptation. If you're God, you should want to impress the people around you. And in our, in our culture, in our everyday lives, this plays out as 
trying to find our security. We live in a generation today where identity, finding our identity, is so much the focus of the world today. And the truth is, we've all lost our identity. Humans are broken. We, we, our identity is messed up. We were made to be the perfect reflection of the love of God, the creativity of God. And Jesus is being tempted not to display God's plan and God's perfect character. Jesus is being tempted. Throw yourself down and let's watch the verification. Let's watch the host of heaven come and rescue you and protect you. Satan is actually using scripture here. He uses Psalm 91. Lest your foot be dashed against a stone. God will protect you. It's a temptation toward pride. And then the third temptation. Maybe the most fatal of all, and that is of control. The temptation to control, to be in control of our lives. If you're God, you should worship. It's interesting here. The way I, the way I, I wrote this point, you should worship being in control. Satan takes Jesus to the highest mountain and says, look at all the earth, all the dominions of the earth. Jesus, I give them all to you. You can rule and reign over every dominion of the earth if you'll bow down to me. Now, the temptation to you and me isn't that you and I would literally kneel down before Satan. I mean, that, that's just super weird and nobody would do that and it's like cultic sounding and it just, we see like weird horns and blood, you know. That's not the real temptation here. To bow down is to worship, to center our lives around me being in control of my life. Jesus, I'll put you in control if you'll bow down. And what's amazing is Jesus is actually at the very start of him launching the kingdom of God into our broken world. He's facing the three temptations that you and I face regularly. The temptations that derail us. We want our pride is tapped. We want to elevate ourselves. We want to prove our significance. That's really what trying to impress others is. We, we try to impress others with our success or talent. I mean, it's crazy. It's ridiculous what grown adults will do out of our own insecurity. Things we do or innuendos we drop about cars we drive or places we've been. It's, a, it's, a, it's giving in to that temptation that has ruled and reigned the earth. And Jesus is resisting each one. I'm going to walk the character of God. I'm going to live the purpose of God. Jesus' temptation to choose power and pride and what feels right, feels right in the moment. Not only are they temptations that you and I face, they're the same temptations he faces on the cross when the mocking crowd is used by the evil one. The evil entity, Satan, who wants to upend everything of God's plan and now his restoration plan is trying one final attempt using the hardened hearts of the mocking crowd. One last attempt to get Jesus to choose pride or control. He's been betrayed by one of his followers, one of the 12. 
He's now being denied three times by Peter. He's all alone on the cross. Isn't this the perfect moment to come down from the cross? I mean, he's being dared. My gosh, when you know you can do something, when you know you can pull out the Super Bowl ticket or you can show the photograph or the... Don't you want to when you're being mocked? You weren't there. No, you can't do this. And he has the power to do it. And this is the beauty of God's power. They're insinuating he doesn't have the power. That there's a weakness. Jesus is just like any other person. There's no way he can come down off the cross. He's powerless. When actually, Jesus shows us his remarkable power by choosing to stay on the cross. His power is seen by choosing, making the choice like he did in the wilderness to resist what's easy, to do what feels right, to take control of the moment. He stays in the plan of the Father. And in doing so, he displays, he demonstrates his full, the full extent of his power. Which is to allow our need for control, our lust for power, our overwhelming desire in choosing to do what's right in the moment. He takes all of that brokenness onto himself. And the net effect of these choosings of ours, of us giving into these temptations, yeah, I want to rule my, I want to react. I'm going to be defensive. I'm going to defend why I'm being defensive. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy the things we do as human beings that hurt others and just hurt ourselves because we want to be in control. And the net effect of our giving into these temptations is death. Death in a relationship with God, the ability to know him, Sure, the ability to live forever the way we were designed. But our ability right here in this life to walk out of guilt and mistakes. Andrew referred to this earlier, I thought, so well with the song, the setup. How God, evidence of God is that he's the God of second chances. I am evidence of God's love because of the second chances offered to me. We often think about eternity like, yeah, Easter's about someday when I'm 89 years old, 94 years old, then I have to really be sure I'm ready. Life, the way God intended you to live it, is supposed to start now in your relationships. However broken you've been, however ugly you've been, however you've been mistreated, we want to point to our parents. We want to talk about our childhoods. We do this. I could do this. We want to talk about people who've genuinely wounded us. I've been wounded. And then we try to cover up our mistakes and we try to cover up the way we've wounded others. And you were designed right now, today, this year, this month, to live out more of God's life and design for you. And it's death. It's a spiritual death. It's a death to our relationships. It's a death to our dreams. That is the result of our, what, what scripture calls sin, our selfish choosing of control. Jesus chose on the cross not just to take our, our 
prideful desire for control onto him. But he chose to allow the net effect to take full effect. To kill him. Jesus could have short-circuited this deal. Man, I've been tortured for hours. I'm hanging here on this cross. Enough. Okay, you want proof? <laughs> I'm still saying this right now. There's part of me that still wishes he did it. I'm so glad he didn't. Because Jesus didn't just take our mistakes and our selfish choosing onto the cross. He took the death and allowed the death to take him. Jesus traded. <laughs> he traded coming down off the cross for coming out of the tomb. And it's significant because coming out of the tomb means he allowed our death, the consequence of our selfishness, to kill him. And then three days later, walking out of the tomb means that he now can give you life over death. The thing that you thought was irreversible, the mistake that you didn't think you'd ever outlive, the way you've been hurt or mistreated, whatever you can point to in life, it's not bad enough or dark enough, it's not death enough for Jesus' power to be extended to you and me. I don't follow Jesus because I'm trying to be religious or I want to be some example of a religious leader in the community. Actually, I try to hold off people finding out I'm a pastor as long as I can. People stop inviting you to things. When Amy and I moved to our street, we moved to Eggertown Street in 2005. I kid you not, I finally caught a neighbor who lived out across from us out at his mailbox or trash can one day, and I'm, like, I'm going to go say hi to this guy. And, you know, I'm Mr. Extrovert, so I'm probably running down my driveway. And I'm like, hey, you know, we start chatting. And at some point in the conversation, he says, hey, can I, can I just be honest with you? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be really real with you. You seem nice. Our neighbors are super freaked out that you moved in here. This is the first thing one of the neighbors tells me. And I'm like, what? And he said, aren't you a pastor? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, the neighbors don't like it. I was like, dude, seriously? He became a good friend. Yeah, it's just, I'm not, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I ran from this gig, as my mom and dad know, for about six months when I thought, oh, no, God wants me to pastor a church. I stopped going to church. It so freaked me out. I followed Jesus for one reason. He took the things that make me dead inside or make me look like a dead version what I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to sound like, the friend I was supposed to be, the forgiver, the quick to forgive, the, the creative life giver, the encourager. He took all the stuff in my life and my heart that kills that ability, that deadens it, and he took it into the tomb. He became that death. And then when he walks out on Easter Sunday, it's like, wait a minute, if he... It's not just another magic trick or amazing miracle like, wow, now, he's, now he can do that. It's that if you have power over death, there's nothing else. You're all powerful. He can undo anything from your past. Anything you've said, anything you've done, anything that you think is lost forever, he can turn into life because he stayed on the cross and endured the full consequence of our control. 
in our pride, in our choosing to do what feels right in the moment. Thank God he didn't choose what felt right. And he didn't choose pride. And he didn't take control of the moment. But not only that, he allowed it, your doing so and my doing so to put him in the tomb. So on this Easter Sunday, I'm going to just challenge you with a, a couple of things. Come back next week. We're going to go a few verses later where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That haunted me for years. Like, this is a holy moment. This is Jesus' followed through. He's obeyed. He prayed the last night in the garden. If it's your will, would you take this cup from me? Can we do plan B? But he stays on plan A and he suffers and endures and he's on the cross and now the Father abandons him? When you dive into it, it makes perfect sense and I'm so grateful. We're going to look at that next week. I'm going to read from Paul in 1 Corinthians, and then I'm going to just challenge you to pray this prayer. We're going to put it on the screen. And listen, don't be afraid to pull out your phones uh, and, and take a picture, take a screenshot of the screen of this prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer every week, okay? So get ready for that as, as I read Paul. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, like the most important thing I've said or will say or will teach. That Christ died. He wasn't just tortured. He, just, he didn't experience just a lot of bad consequences for you. He actually went all the way and died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and, then, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, Paul says, though some have fallen asleep now. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. This is one of the most powerful scriptures in the New Testament. Paul is saying, it's not just rumor. There are countless eyewitnesses who have spoken to Jesus and experienced him on this side of the tomb. Jesus is alive. He actually has beaten death. All those things in relationships. There's so many people today afraid of relationships. I can't tell you how many people will tell me, I just, I'll never trust marriage again. I'll never allow myself to get too close to somebody again. That's death. We're speaking death when we say those things. This world has the ability to snuff out of us what we were made for in community and friendship. Jesus makes us alive where we've been dead. Here's the prayer. If you're new here today, if you've been with us all year, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, the spiritual spectrum of belief or investigation. Maybe you're curious. I'm going to ask you to consider praying this. Certainly those of us who believe and follow Jesus. Okay, this is my closing prayer, and I'm going to read it. I want to get every word right. Jesus, open my eyes to how broken I am and, and unable to become who you made me to be. My need for control and my pride leave me without a way to become whole. But no, that's not actually true. 
I know now that you were broken by my sin, so I can now be made complete and guiltless because of your power over death itself. Make me alive in every part of me, Jesus, as I fully give you my life. And if you've never done that before, if you've never given Jesus your life, it's, it's really that simple. Jesus, I don't have it all figured out. I've got so many questions. Questions about Easter and there's so much that I don't know. But Jesus, I know you are compelling me toward you. I know I'm experiencing your reality. Jesus, I choose to give you my life. I'm going to just challenge you, whether you consider me your pastor or not. Join us again next Sunday, and then we are going to conclude by celebrating at the Lord's table what the cross made possible for us, taking into ourselves the substitution of our brokenness so that we could be made alive.